Um, if you are here for the first time with us, we're so glad that you've decided to worship with us today. Um, we are a church that loves the Word of God, and so today we are going to dive right in. Uh, we're going to be he- going headfirst back into Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to be ending Paul's one long sentence of praise. Um, you know, and I personally have found this one sentence that we see in the original language from verse 3 all the way to verse 14 so fascinating, just looking at it through the lens of Paul worshiping the Lord. Because it's not hard to see that uh, there are a lot of things that have been said in this one sentence that have called philosophers uh, and theologians, have caused philosophers and theologians for thousands of years to take deep dives into some of these very complex things and are still left scratching their head. You know, you're just looking at predestination and election and God's choosing nature and the mystery of God's will and the extent of God's sovereignty and control and also the Trinity. Like these are some really deep, complex things that have caused people in the church a lot of late-night conversations trying to figure out what Paul meant. And Paul's over here like, I'm just praising the Lord. <laughs> Again, I told you we're diving headfirst in today. But what we can't do is just ignore the complexity of these things and skirt past them or sidestep them because we don't like them or don't understand them. Because all of Paul's praise in this sentence is driven by his theology. You know, Paul's praise is not empty with warm and fuzzies, but it's driven by looking at who God is and what God has done through Jesus. And so we don't ignore these complex things. No, we dive into them and we seek to understand them. But again, it's for the purpose of worship. And and there's no denying this. Ephesians chapter 1 is full of depth and riches that show us all all of who profess faith in Jesus, what we have when we are in Christ. And again, Paul is writing to a bunch of different churches at Ephesus who are in a difficult cultural climate with emperor worship and also worshiping a Greek god, different gods. And so these churches are in a place where Jesus is, uh, we're, we're saying Jesus is Lord could get them thrown into jail, which is exactly where Paul is as he writes this letter. And so Paul, as he writes this rich and deep sentence of praise driven by these deep truths, he's doing it to remind these churches of their identity that is in Christ. He's reminding them of their foundational identity that it does not change based off of their circumstances or their performance or personality or family heritage. No, their identity is given to them by the God of the universe. And this identity also extends to us today. And it leads us to praise the Lord no matter the circumstances. No matter if we're in jail, undergoing persecution, hardship, or suffering... No matter what is, if what is going on around us with relational hardship, with family, with jobs, finances, whatever it is, no matter the circumstances, because of what we are given by God through Jesus, we are able to rejoice and endure. And it's not some empty fake praise, but it's a praise that says, God, I don't understand this. I'm struggling to see this, but today, because of who you are, I'm choosing to trust you, and because of that, I can rejoice. Listen, every, every single day, as followers of Jesus, we have a reason to sing praises to the Lord, both in our deep pits of hardship and also in the sweet moments of life. Because as we've seen in Ephesians chapter 1, we have heavenly riches and blessings given to us by God. You know, we've been given Jesus and what, all that comes with Jesus. He's our rock. He's our cornerstone. And if we are in Christ, like Paul says, over and over again in this letter, we have access to all the spiritual blessings that Jesus has. And no, we're not talking about physical blessings, but spiritual blessings. And in our text today, Paul continues with this same idea. Look what it says in just the first half of verse 11, chapter 1. Paul says, In him we have obtained 
an inheritance. And I want you to just stop and think about this with me. Because Paul is saying that in Jesus we have an inheritance. We have a blessing given to us and also waiting for us by God. And ultimately that inheritance is God himself. But as we'll see today, it includes God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And everything that comes with all of, all of the Trinity, which is a lot. And I don't know if, if you've ever inherited anything, whether it's generational wealth or maybe something like furniture or clothes. And when my grandmother passed away several years ago, my grandfather significantly downsized. Me and my siblings, we all inherited several things like furniture and china and several, several other things. And so all my kids' dressers and their side tables and my desk, some of, our, uh, some of the beds at our house are mostly things that we've inherited. It was kind of passed on to us. And, and maybe you've inherited things that were very nice and valuable at one point in time, but then maybe it's like, this was great back then, but what do we do with this now? For example, we also inherited a very nice mink stole that looks like three very real ferrets that are tied together. And it has it totally terrified my kids when they were younger. Maybe because their loving father was having way too much with this mink stole and made it seem like these three animals were attacking their father. And because of this, they literally would not go into the same room as this thing. Because they thought these three animals that were all tied together were going to attack them. But the point I'm trying to get at is that some things that we inherit, we might think, oh, that's cool, but we don't really know what to do with it. And some things maybe we know are immensely valuable. And I think maybe it can seem like our inheritance from God is somewhat of a mixture of both. Like we know we have inherited something immensely valuable, while at the same time maybe we think, what do I do with this? We know what to do with a physical blessing or a physical inheritance, like a desk or a car or money. But when it comes to spiritual inheritance, maybe we think, that sounds awesome, but so what? And I don't think this distinction between physical and spiritual should surprise us, because as we saw back in the book of John, we often saw Jesus use physical realities to teach us about spiritual realities. I mean, Jesus himself knew that we need help to understand the spiritual blessings that we have in order to understand our full inheritance. Just to give one example of a spiritual blessing that we have in Jesus. You know, ultimately, Jesus is our greatest blessing, but something that comes with Jesus is peace. Our hearts and minds, we can be at rest. Our souls can find rest and peace. Even when life is hard and crazy, there is a peace that is found in trusting the Lord. This is an inheritance that we are given that right now we have access to because of Jesus. But yet what often happens is that our longing for peace, which we all have, is just part of our wiring as humans to long for this. We often feed our spiritual longings with things in the physical world that can then dull and dilute the blessing of our spiritual inheritance. And again, tr try to follow me here. You know, when our spiritual cravings are fed by physical cravings, like maybe when a person searches for peace in a substance or food or in a person or maybe in some sort of desired outcome like a clean house or success at work whatever those things are that can bring some sort of temporary peace and, and some may be good and some may be not so good and yes god has given us many gifts uh, physical gifts like food and relationships and family to be enjoyed but the point is when we feed our spiritual longings with physical cravings we can often dull and dilute the magnitude of our inheritance that we have in christ 
It's like we have this inheritance in Jesus, but it seems insignificant because the significance it brings is temporarily found in other things. Here, here's an illustration that I think will help. Imagine being gifted uh, a, like a really nice steak dinner at Burns Steakhouse. If you're hungry right now, I'm sorry. Maybe it will actually help make the point. But just imagine, okay, the best steak with just the right amount of salt and butter just cooked to perfection, just waiting on you to enjoy. It, it smells great. It looks great. Uh, the best steak you've had all year. You know it's going to be good. You've been waiting on this for weeks to enjoy it. But then right before you go, you stuff yourself full of cheese balls. You were so hungry, but you settled for those balls of puffy fake cheese. I mean, maybe you like cheese balls, but you had something way better right around the corner. And what happened? The satisfaction for that steak was diluted by the cheese balls. The experience of that steak dinner was undercut by puffs of fake cheese. And this is the point we're trying to make. This thing, the same thing can happen with us with our inheritance that we have in Christ. We struggle to be satisfied with our inheritance because it's being fed by other things. And Paul is trying to tell the church, churches at Ephesus at, look at, uh, like, to look and notice the blessing that they have in Christ. He's been reminding them of all these things like peace and grace and forgiveness and redemption, uh, that we've been chosen by God and called sons and daughters and saints. Like These are the riches and the blessings that we have uh, that we've seen so far up in chapter 1. And Paul is seeking to draw our attention to the glory and goodness that is found in God through Jesus. And then Paul continues in our text today. And so let's go ahead and get uh, these next four verses, starting in verse 11, to see what Paul says. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And so we see this inheritance language, this inheritance language in verse 11, and then also down at the end in verse 14, where it says, when we believed in him, we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. And so we have this inheritance that is given to us by God through Jesus. But the question that our text today then answers is, how is this inheritance confirmed? Like, how can we be certain that we have it? You know, what is something that we have that can help us not settle for the cheese balls? Again, if this inheritance is spiritual and not physical, then how do we know if we have it? And our text tells us it's sealed, it's confirmed, it's guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Which leads us to our main idea. The church's glorious inheritance is confirmed by the Holy Spirit. And yes, I understand there is a lot more to what we just read in our text, which is why I very intentionally added the church's glorious inheritance, because this inheritance that we, that we, the church, have, the depths that come with it, and how we even receive it, it's truly glorious. It should lead us to praise, because as we've already seen in Ephesians 1, it's not accidental. It's not by chance or mistake. No, it comes from the God who holds the whole world in his hands. Our inheritance, it comes from a sovereign God who is over the entire universe, who is over rulers and authorities, as, Colossians, as Paul says in Colossians. It comes from our God who sees all and knows all, who has all power. Our God is not weak and powerless, who created the world and then just left it to chance. No, our God is deeply involved in his creation and with us. 
So much so that he has given us an inheritance that we can know and experience now, today, by the Holy Spirit. And so if you want to know the inheritance that has been given to us by God and through Jesus' new city, we study the Trinity, which includes the Holy Spirit. Because again, the base level of our inheritance is God. It comes with the full Trinity. We get God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's our inheritance. And I'm, I'm telling you, if you want to take a deep dive into uh, theology and uh, use, use like Ephesians chapter 1 to go into the depths, and we've got a lifetime of content here. Because New City, the Trinity, it's one of those things that is incredibly hard to explain. And it has caused me a lot of heartache trying to explain it to my kids. They're like, hey, Dad, who's stronger, God or Jesus? And they're convinced that God is stronger because Jesus is human. And then I'm like, well, Jesus is actually fully God and has all the powers of God. And then we kind of start going in circles. It's one of those glorious truths that can make your head hurt. It's because it's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. That's the Trinity. You know, I've heard a lot of illustrations and the only one that has made sense to me is saying it's not one plus one plus one uh, that makes three different gods, but rather it's one times one times one. That's the Trinity. And yes, I know it breaks down. It isn't perfect. But I bring this up because Paul builds off of the Trinity in Ephesians chapter one to discuss our inheritance. From verse three all the way to verse 14, we see Paul talk about the entire Trinity in this one sentence in regards to our blessing and inheritance. He talks about God the Father as the one giving the blessing and inheritance. We see how through Jesus we receive our blessing and inheritance. And then finally today, we see that the Spirit is the seal and the guarantee of our inheritance. And so we're going to talk about the Spirit some today. And so we're going to go back to our text. We've got three points. Uh, Number one, the church's inheritance. Number two, Jesus the Savior. And then number three, the Spirit's guarantee. And as as we go back through all of this, we'll see several complex things. That we've, already, that we've already been talking about in this chapter over the past few weeks. But fear not, because we're going to try to keep it simple and let Paul's intent of praise drive our time. And hopefully, the more we keep circling around uh, these verses, in the end, it'll all hopefully make more sense. And so let's look at verse 11 again as we get to our first point. Paul says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We've already talked about this first phrase of obtaining an inheritance, but we haven't jumped into the rest of this verse, which immediately leads us back into theological deep end, looking at predestination and God's will. And hopefully, uh, the more we dive into the depths of these things, like uh, they will, like Paul, lead us to praise the Lord. Again, we've talked about these things over the past two weeks, so we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but I do want to talk about it all in relation to, number one, the church's inheritance. And just to rephrase verse 11 another way, we could say the church was chosen by God in advance to receive an inheritance from God. You know, Paul has used that word predestined twice now in Ephesians chapter 1. And both times, Paul used it in relation to God's will or God's plan, uh, which is all tied to our inheritance. Uh, That is God. And I know that predestination is not a popular word or idea because of the implications that it could bring that I know that many will wrestle with. Like asking, what about everybody else? What about free will? And on and on we could go, which is why people ignore this and say we don't like these verses. But we can't ignore or reject these ideas or skirt past it because it's in the Bible. We have to wrestle with it. 
You know, we, here in the city, we teach the entire Bible, every word and every verse, even the hard and complicated ones. We don't get to pick and choose what's true in the Bible and what's not. We read it all, we teach it all, and some things we have to just submit to God and say, God, I trust you. God, your wisdom is infinite. My wisdom is finite. Yes, we wrestle and we think about these things, and I think we can come to some good answers, but no matter how far we get, we have to continually realize that God is all good and all holy, and that he is very, uh, very smart. He's way smarter than we are. I mean, just think about this. As an illustration, you know, each, each of my kids, when they were about three years old, they all wanted to go outside by themselves, unattended, and just kind of run around in the streets and play in the streets by, uh, by themselves, and, but we never let them. And each time, they would cry and say, why not? I want to go. They just couldn't understand why playing in the streets as a three-year-old by themselves wasn't a good idea. But every parent knows and understands why it's not a good idea for a three-year-old to play in the streets by themselves unattended. And I think it's fair to say that there is a big gap in understanding between me as their dad and them as a three-year-old. They just could not understand it. Uh, they had limited understanding. And so I think it's fair to say, if there is a big gap in understanding between me and my once three-year-olds, imagine how much bigger the gap of understanding is between us and the God of the universe, who sees all and knows all. Yes, we can understand things and we wrestle with them, but at the end of the day, God's wisdom and understanding is infinite, and our wisdom and understanding is finite. We have to just hum, like humbly say, who are we to think that we're smarter than God? Who are we to think that we know better than God? And so, yes, when we think of God's choosing nature and predestination and election, we think about it and we wrestle with it and all the complexities of it. But again, the point of Paul bringing this up is to lead us to humility and praise. I mean, get this. This exact same truth that can cause us and so many others to get tripped up and ask questions and be pretty confused by are also the exact same truths that will lead us to our knees in humble humility and can provide us with so much peace and security and an unshakable confidence. And so again, Paul has now brought up predestination and his choosing nature in accordance with his will twice now in Ephesians chapter 1. And again, what Paul means in saying this is that God, from the beginning of time, just like he said earlier in verse 4, before the foundation of the world, God chose the church. God chose God's people for a specific purpose. And that purpose that God chose his people for was to be holy before God, to be adopted sons and daughters, to be used by God through Jesus to unite all things in heaven and on earth, just like we saw last week, which is just an incredibly humbling honor that should lead us to our knees in praise, saying, God, why me? Like, why did you choose me for this incredible inheritance? Like, this is Paul's intent. It's, 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 it's humble praise. And just maybe right now your head is spinning. And you have all sorts of questions. And if that's the case, totally fine. You're likely not alone in this. We want to walk with you in this journey. We want, like, talk about these things in your groups. Just to, but in more simple terms, this is what we mean. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're in Christ then you've been chosen by God before God ever created the world. He knew you and saw you, and he has a purpose for your life. And what we can see from our text today that just jumps off the page is that God has a purpose, and he is working and active to fulfill that purpose. It doesn't say God sits by idly. No, he is extremely involved in our life. God absolutely did not create the world and then leave it to chance 
No, our text tells us today that God has a plan and he is actively working towards that plan. And your life, Christian, is intricately involved in that divine plan. He knows exactly what you're going through. He knows exactly what's on your heart and mind. He knows your struggles, your excitements, your apathy, your pain, your sickness. He knows all of it. And God is actively working to use whatever you're going through to accomplish his divine will and purpose. No, we don't always know why or how or by what means each thing in our life is accomplishing these things, especially the hard things. But we can be confident that every little detail of our life, God is actively involved in and working in, and he has not left us alone. We can be confident that our God is not passive. No, he is, he is, not, he is not absent And he is not some God that just sits up in a nice air-conditioned life while we sit here on earth and sweat in pain. No, God came down to earth to live in the pain of life with us. He died on the cross to display his love, and he understands the toil of this life. And he is working towards his divine plan, and we can trust that he is good and powerful, and he does not work some things for his plan and remain absent from others. No, he works all things, it says, according to the purpose of his will. If God can use the painful cross, seeing his son, Jesus, die for his will and purpose, we can be confident that he can use even the worst parts of our life for his good purposes because God, he is a redeeming and restoring God that deeply loves his people. God has not left us or abandoned us. No, our God is with us and he is working all things for his good purposes. You see, just the confidence and security and peace that we as Christians can have with these foundational, remarkable truths is an incredible inheritance and blessing. I was listening to a podcast this week, and it was was with a conversation with an atheist. It was so fascinating because the one thing above all others that he said he was envious of with Christians is our degree of comfort and security and certainty certainty that we have with these exact truths, believing that God is good and sovereign and over all things, that God has a plan and a purpose and is actively working in our lives to that end. And the fact that an atheist sees this and is envious of this, I think speaks to the peace that we can have knowing that our God holds the whole world in his hands, which includes every detail of our life. Our inheritance, New City, is God himself. And what God brings as a piece to that is his goodness and sovereignty. He brings his plan and his purpose over every detail of his life and says to us each day, I'm here. I'm with you. I've got this. Trust me. Find rest. New City, it's not shocking to me that one of the most assuring, confidence-boosting, and comforting truths that we have about God is also the exact same truth that our enemy wants to use to create discord and clouds of doubt within the church. Because at the end of the day, God is good and God is over all things. His wisdom is infinite and ours is finite. We must say, God, I don't understand it all, but I'm going to choose to trust you anyways because of the cross and the resurrection that says, Jesus loves you, this I know. And we can do this, the sweetness of our inheritance that we have in Christ, we can see it and enjoy it and wait for it in an incredibly joy-filling way. But we need to keep moving. And I love what we see next in verse 12. Because here Paul gives uh, a reason for all of what we just talked about. Look what it says in verse 12. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. 
God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. And then as we just read, it says, so that those who are first, the first to put their hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. He says the first to hope in Christ, which are those with a Jewish background. Because then in verse 13, he then says, then you also making a distinction between uh, the Jews and the Gentiles, which is Gentiles is just a Bible word for saying everybody else, which includes you and me. But the point is, those who find their hope in Jesus, when we do that, we give God glory. God's will for us is to glorify God, is to praise and worship Jesus. And the way in which we glorify God is by putting our hope in Jesus and not something else. Again, God has given us an incredible steak dinner with Jesus as our inheritance, and God doesn't want us to go for the cheese balls. We have a glorious inheritance in Christ, and we put our hope in Christ. It shows that God is glorious. So again, the tension that we must hold is that God is working all things out according to the counsel of his will, seeing the sovereignty and the power of God. He's in all things and over all things, while at the same time, we see here we have the responsibility as people to put our hope in Jesus. Y'all, God did not create us to be robots, though he created us to love him. And so we must hold this tension because the Bible holds this tension. That yes, absolutely God chose us, but he chose us so that we would love him. Our love and our hope that we find in Jesus must be reciprocated back to him. And the way in which we love God and find our hope in him is by trusting, number two, Jesus the Savior. Just to say it again, that yes, God is over all things and in all things. He has a plan to unite all things back to him. Nothing happens apart from the will of God. God is actively working in all things while at the exact same time, Paul shows us in our verses today, our human responsibility is to hear the truth of the gospel and believe in Christ. It may seem like, in many ways, a divine paradox that we must say, God, you're way smarter than me. Your wisdom is infinite. My wisdom is finite. And y'all, Paul has been circling these ideas all through Ephesians chapter 1. And look what Paul says next in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So Paul, back in verse 12, was addressing who Jesus went to first, which again were the Jews. And now in verse 13, Paul is saying, in him, in Christ, you also, meaning everyone else, Everything we've read up to this point, yes, it's true for us, but he's making an emphasis now for, for all of us, including you and me, saying, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And church, this is really important if you're not a Christian here today. Just listen up, because this is how you become a Christian, and you gain the glorious inheritance that we've been talking about. And this is how you can find peace and security and confidence that God has a plan for your life. Paul said they heard the word of truth, and that truth was the gospel of salvation. If you're not familiar with the gospel, it's, this is essential to following Jesus. This is how you become a, a Christian. This is what every Christian has hope in every day. It changes our today and also our eternity. I mean, gospel, very simply put, just means good news. We have good news, which also means there's bad news. And the bad news is when we sin and disobey God, his way of life, like lying, stealing, cheating, when we do these things, just one of them, it comes with an eternal consequence. And the eternal consequence is death and separation from God forever. It's tragic. Just one sin leads us to an eternity in hell. It is absolutely horrific and tra uh, tra tragic. It's terrible. It's awful news. This is the bad news. 
But the good news is that God gave us a way to be saved and freed from that. God made a way for us to be freed from our penalty, and the way in which God made a way is our good news. This is the Christian gospel, that God sent his son Jesus to live the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserve to die. He rose from the dead, defeated sin and death for us. And instead of you and me receiving the tragic consequences for our sin, Jesus took it for us. Jesus was substituted in our place. That's the truth of the gospel. But the only way we can be saved is by believing it. By believing that Jesus was truly God, died on the cross for our sins, and then rose from the dead. Our responsibility is belief. That's it. That's what Paul just showed us in verse 13. Belief in Jesus is the only requirement for obtaining our inheritance. If you want to know if you've been chosen by God, we just must simply believe. That's it. If you're not a Christian here today, I would urge you to believe in Jesus, to put your hope in Christ. There's no other hope our world can give us that comes with an inheritance like the one that comes with Jesus. Again, I would urge you to put your hope in Christ. You cannot save yourself. Doing more good than bad will not save you. Coming to church, reading your Bible, saying prayers, none of these things will save you. The only thing that will save you from the penalty of your sin is believing in Jesus. That's it. Trust Him today. Because like we've been saying over the past few weeks, it comes with an inheritance. It comes with forgiveness. It comes with a a new, fresh start. It comes with being called sons and daughters of God. It means when you believe, you've been chosen by by God before the foundation of the world. You know what else it comes with? It comes with the Holy Spirit. It comes with number three, the Spirit's guarantee. You know, we we just read at the end of, of verse 13 that after a person believes, they're then sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And there are a lot of great aspects of the gospel. And if you hear me preach long enough, you'll find out real quick that I really love this part of the gospel. Freedom and forgiveness, really good news. Being called sons and daughters, really good news. Being set free from the penalty of sin, really good news. Being sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, this also is really good news. And unfortunately, this is the part of our gospel that often gets left out. And it is so sad to me. Because without this part of the gospel, we're set free, but we're still powerless. The promised Holy Spirit that comes upon a believer after we believe in Jesus is what changes a person from the inside out. This is the part of our inheritance. We're given the power to change. We're given the power and the ability to overcome addictions, to release strongholds, to break destructive habits, to simply just speak the simple gospel and alter a person's eternity. Y'all, there are a lot of things that I would point to that authenticate the resurrection of Jesus and the realness of our, th- and our, of our faith. But the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives to transform just my own life in a radical way, as well as the lives of so many of you and so many around the world, this is enough evidence for me that shows and confirms for us that, yes, God is working, that God is working out His will and His plan and His purpose. Is it always easy? No. Does it sometimes feel like we're going backwards? Yes. Are there times when we stop and think, God, what are you doing? Yes, absolutely. But in those moments, we can trust that God is working all things out for his plan and purpose, including the really hard things. New City, seeing the activity of the Holy Spirit in our own lives and also in the lives of others around us is incredibly faith-building. It's part of our inheritance. Seeing a person find joy in Jesus and find hope in Jesus in the middle of hardship and chaos and suffering and pain, it deepens our trust in the Lord. When I look out at each of you and just see how much God is just working in our own 
lives, New City, it deepens my own faith. It moves me to long to access more of my inheritance in Christ right now. It leads me to want more of Jesus. It drives me to not settle for the cheese balls and wait for the steak. And what Paul is showing us here is that at the point of belief for a person, that person is then sealed with the Holy Spirit. And what he means by saying sealed is saying that a person, upon belief, is marked by new ownership from God. They're secured through Jesus, and it's confirmed by the Holy Spirit. You know, a seal, it was like a Roman stamp or kind of like a, brand, a way of branding that was used often in cattle or, or maybe in slaves at times, showing permanent ownership. And when Paul says, upon belief, we're sealed by the Holy Spirit, he's saying the presence of God in the form of the Spirit is living inside of us, and we are now God's children. God is now the ruler of our life. When the Holy Spirit is in someone, that's confirmation they're no longer a slave to sin, but now they're a child of God. Again, at the point of conversion, the Spirit of God breathes new life into a person and brings them from death to life. They were once blind, but by the power of the Spirit, a person who has believed in Jesus can now more fully see Jesus. We we saw at the end of verse 13, it said, we're sealed by the promised Holy Spirit, and then Paul says in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit seals us under God's ownership and then also guarantees our inheritance. That word guarantee is more like a deposit or kind of like a down payment on a house. You know, when we make a down payment on a house, it's our house. We can live in it. We can move in, paint, make changes. And my wife Kelly, when uh, when we bought our first house, she was excited to decorate it and make it a, a home You know, after we put our down payment on the house, our entire house, it was totally painted, fixed up. Like her dad came in, like fixed a bunch of things because our house, it needed a ton of work. And our initial down payment was made and we received the keys to the house. We were able to come in and fix it and change it before we ever made our first monthly payment. Our house, it was totally different. We treated the house as if it was fully ours, but guess what? It wasn't ours yet. The bank still owned that house. And what I'm getting at here is that the Holy Spirit is like God's down payment for us, for our inheritance. It guarantees our inheritance. The Holy Spirit in our life is evidence that we have God's inheritance. Just like we can renovate a house that we don't fully own because we put a down payment on that house, in the same way Paul is saying the Holy Spirit is a first deposit of our inheritance. And so what this means is, If we want to live in our internal inheritance now, we seek the Lord with the help of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us to access parts of our eternal inheritance that we will fully see in the future. The Holy Spirit helps us receive it now. Maybe we can say the Holy Spirit is kind of like the wind. We can't see it, but we can can see its effects. Multiple times in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is called our helper. New City, if God is working all things together through the counsel of his will, the one doing the work on God's behalf is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the activity of God working all things out according to God's will. He's the one bringing about the will of God. And guess what? The Holy, that Holy Spirit that is bringing about God's purpose lives inside of those who believe in Jesus which means God then works through us, empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring about his purposes and will. 
And so if the Holy Spirit is is inside of us, it will lead us to do things that bring about God's will and purpose. It will lead us to pray. It will lead us to get into the Word and to seek to know God more. It will lead us to share our faith with others and to live on mission. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and it moves us towards things of God, things that are good and holy. This is what the Holy Spirit does. And in many ways, as those who believe in Jesus, we always fully have the Holy Spirit. While at the same time, we also beg and plead for the Spirit to move among us, for the Spirit to work in us, for us to better understand the fullness of the Spirit we already fully have. You know, when we ask the the Holy Spirit to come and move among us, when we pray for the Spirit's power in our gatherings, and in our preaching, and in our singing, and in our evangelism and discipleship, yes, we can be confident if believers are present, the Holy Spirit is already there. But yet, while uh, at the same time, like we still say, come Holy Spirit, come, because we want to see your power in a more tangible way. We're saying we know you here, but we're asking you to move in power. We're asking the Spirit to open up blind eyes, to see Jesus, to restore relationships, for burdens to be lifted off, for God to heal wounds, for dark clouds of doubt and unbelief to be removed. And we say this, and we pray for this, because the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that lives within us. We cry out, God, breathe life into people. Breathe life into those that don't see the beauty of Jesus and open up their eyes to see and draw them to yourself. And the reason we do this is because the Holy Spirit is working in us and through us. This is evidence of the Spirit of God working in order to bring about God's purpose and will that he has set out and chose us to be a part of before the foundation of the world. New City, this entire sentence of praise starts with the blessing of God. It shows us the beauty of Jesus, and it ends with the power of the Spirit. And without the Spirit living and moving and working, we would not be moved to praise. When we praise the Lord, when we exalt Jesus, that's the Spirit working in our life. It is God's kindness to us just to get small glimpses of heaven here on earth through the presence and power of the Spirit. Y'all, the Spirit of God working here now in an imperfect world, it is just a taste of what is to come when we will be in the full presence of God. And just today, as, as we end our time, I want us to walk away with just two really simple next steps. The first is just to think and pray over how these truths moves us towards just God and His mission and His purpose. It's just one of the many things we're praying for. We're praying that each person in our church would have at least one person that we're praying for to come to Christ. One of the greatest evidences of the Spirit of God working through us to accomplish His will is by compelling us and burdening us to share about Jesus. Like, this is the Spirit working in us. So let's ask, who is that one person that God maybe has put on your heart to pray for and to seek to share Christ with? And y'all, knowing that it's God's will to bring people to himself, it is incredibly empowering. It moves us to live on mission with confidence. And the fact that God has placed a person on your heart is a really good indicator for us to be praying and sharing with them. That's the Spirit's work. And then secondly, our, our other hope and prayer is that we, again, we would just simply be led to praise the Lord. You know, I've, just, I've been praying for our church specifically this year that we would simply just be more in awe of God. 
Not, not, by what we, not by what God does for us, but simply just of who he is. That we would just be led in all. We'd be moved to all of God. And church, just like we said last week, don't settle. May we not settle for anything less, for nothing less than our full inheritance that we have in Christ. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you work in us and through us. God, we're thankful that we have a full inheritance in Christ, fully waiting on us, while at the same time, God, you're living and active. God, we have it now. We have access to it right now. If there's anybody here in this room right now that is not giving their life over to Jesus, God, I pray by the Holy Spirit's power, you would prick their heart, you would move them to just say, God, I need you. I need your power. I need your inheritance. God, I believe in you. I want to put my, my faith and hope in Jesus. God, would you move among us and in us? And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.